Hello, everybody, and welcome to Voices Through Avalon. My name is Sharon Fincher. And I'm Katie Smith. And we have Mr. Jonathan Vaughn with us here today. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, One of the things that we're doing here at Avalon is we're really trying to bring a lot of attention to male survivors of of sexual assault. And and Mr. Vaughn here has been very intricate in a lot of things that are going on that are happening. I'm not going to go into detail about it, but he has a wonderful story to tell. And as far as his activism and, and the things that he's involved in. So we were looking forward to really hearing what Mr. Vaughn has to say. Hi, John. Hi. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now here in Ann Arbor? Uh, yeah. So I am one of several thousand um, victims of Dr. Robert Anderson, who was a doctor at the University of Michigan. And in the latter part of his career, I guess the last 20 years, he was the head um, football doctor, but the head sports doctor, who um, during his tenure, um, I think he was there about 37 years, uh, he was given unnecessary prostate exams, uh, testicular cancer exams, all under the guise of medicine, as well as doing um, uh, sperm sample testing Mm -hmm. from your freshman year to your senior year. Um, But we came to find out that he had some partnerships with some fertility clinics, and uh, currently my main focus is trying to find out, you know, a mapping of where our DNA went. Mm. Mm. Wow. wow. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you've been getting the word out in Ann Arbor around that. Um, well, um, I think one of the people that you work with, Trené, um, has become one of my best friends, and um, I was frustrated at um, the process that um, Michigan, as well as our attorneys, were having in mediation, and felt like um, the longer it went on, the 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 less we were being treated as humans. No, dis, you know, disrespect and whatnot. And you know, I told Trene, I said, um, you know, I'm going to do something radical. Um, I'm going to go out and protest in front of the president's house. Um, at that time, didn't realize what I was getting myself into um, because I had never camped in my life. Like mm-hmm. I literally went out there with a, you know, like a soccer mom pup tent mm-hmm. and a backpack. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just wanted to get the word out. Um, but really it was just making a stand. Um, I leveraged the fact that in researching Ann Arbor and the University of Michigan has always been a pro First Amendment mm-hmm. and, um, and a pro protest city and college and um, felt like we could bring the fight to them and uh, bring more awareness. Um, but once I got there, I didn't realize how acute the problem was as it pertains to sexual violence mm-hmm. and student safety. And um, so we currently are, I think we're over 120 days now. Um, I was out there the first 100 days really to change the narrative, but also it became more about not changing what happened to us, mm-hmm. but making the campus a safer place um, for not only the students that are there today, but students in the future. Mm-hmm. I remember um, I actually attended one of your first protests, and I got to witness the speak out. And I remember 
parking my car on one of the side streets and walking up to the president's house where everything was happening and I could feel the energy and just hearing people speak out, hearing you talk, hearing, you know, students talk, I, I really was, it was definitely like profound. To, I've never been part of anything like that. I've never really done that, even being here at Avalon for 10 years. And so yeah. it was really. Um, oh. Yeah, it was definitely a life-changing experience for me um, in two ways. <clears throat> I'm a girl dad. And so um, having spent time on campus talking to, you know, thousands of students, but more importantly, hearing intimate details of sexual assault or rape from young female students Mm -hmm. really impacted me. But more than anything else, because of our presence there, I probably heard 25 to 50 individual cases from young men. Mm. Um, You know, if I backtrack a little bit, my background, like I grew up and I was raped as a, as a child, Um, rape, semi-sexual traffic mm. within a, it was an underground homosexual black community mm-hmm. in St. Louis. And the threat was, you know, it became threat on my life and then a threat on my mother's life. Wow. So I understood violent rape. I didn't understand what we went through in college, mm. but it brought me back to those days of, mm. I never even told my parents or my mother until I was 38 years of age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't tell her all the details. And so for so many young men of all colors to step out of what is taboo, mm-hmm. right, to show weakness, to talk about our trauma, it was just empowering. Mm-hmm. And um, what I tell people from my perspective, being a survivor of rape is like being on this ever-shrinking island. Mm-hmm. Because you're isolated, you feel like the shame, the grief, and that island like pulls you away from society. Mm-hmm. And having those conversations actually kind of brought me back. Um, because I hadn't thought about my childhood trauma. And, you know, maybe I think I dealt with that in my mid-20s. Mm. And then hadn't even thought about my day-to-day life at Michigan for 30 years. And then having to be out front with, you know, not necessarily the scarlet letter, but you're leading with, I'm a victim of rape. But you have to stand tall. And um, there's one thing that Trine and I talk about all the time is no survivor should ever stand alone. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in this case specifically um, against Michigan, the majority of the victims in the athletic department were African-American males. Mm. And, you know, it's taboo. It's, you know, a lot of times sexual assault in the black community or even, you know, other ethnic communities are handled within the family. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the, you know, the elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. And I think that that has led to um, something that's also near and dear to me is I'm in, you know, I actually was able to play in the NFL. And in my era, I've had a lot of guys commit suicide um, from, you know, head traumas and things of that nature. But I think the body always keeps the score when it comes to trauma. And the more you repress it, 
you have no idea what effect that is on your mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, it's just at a, you know, I'm 50, I'll be 52, March the 12th. So I consider myself on the back nine of my life Mm -hmm. and, um, I really don't care what people think. Um, I have a grandson now, Mm -hmm. um, I have a granddaughter. So I'm thinking about how to hopefully impact the world now so that if they are, or have to face that kind of trauma, it can be talked about, um, no longer, um, a secret, so to speak. I think I want to thank you for for everything that you're doing, and I know mm-hmm. you know that it, it may feel lonely, um, but I'm 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 gonna tell you this because before COVID, because you know there's everything before COVID, then COVID, and now we're after COVID. <laughs> right, right. But before COVID, I, I I went to a lot of conferences, and and one of the things that I brought back with me was the need to work with men. Um, we started a men's group, and we had we we actually had men that came and and really shared a lot of things. And when I went to these conferences and I specifically went to more male focused discussions, um, first of all, to ask them, how can I, as a woman, go in here and, and make men comfortable enough to feel, you know, feel comfortable enough to talk about it? And and what do we need to talk about and how to address that? So I spent a lot of time putting that together, one, because I didn't want to come into a space and take it over. And I wanted to make sure that the men felt powerful still. And and knew that I was just there for support, but it was for them. And it worked for a while, and then COVID happened. And so what we saw was a lot of things. And one of the things that I always told everybody was, until we start involving men in the conversations, nothing is going to change. Because, you know, it's looked at as, as men being the perpetrators, which in a lot of cases, 90%, they usually are. But we never talk about the men who are the survivors, and once you make men feel powerful and make them feel comfortable and safe and you support them in these conversations, things are going to start to change. And so, you know, you've come and, and even when you're talking about your your presence on University of Michigan's campus and things like that, um, that's so important. And, and, you know, toxic masculinity plagues men, especially black men, where, where they're taught that if you cry, you're a punk. And, and how can you let somebody do that to you? And so at what at what point are we making them feel good enough and comfortable enough to come out and, and, and even say anything so that we can address it? And then there's the other added thing where what stays in, what goes on in this house stays in this house. Right. And you have people even even still today where they may have been assaulted by a family member that's welcome there and they're forced to be quiet. And if you say anything, there's something wrong with you. So I think being open about everything and changing yeah. the narrative is great. What we have seen, and even in our last staff meeting, there has been an increase in male survivors coming forward, receiving services and help from us. So I know that we're doing the right thing. And I just want to tell you, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for standing in your truth. And you are doing exactly what you wanted to do. And you are making a difference. And you are creating a space for men to feel comfortable and men to really seek help, get support, but also speak out about sexual violence. No, I um, I appreciate that, and you know it's a it's a weird dynamic mm-hmm. because, like, what saved my life was, I mean, you know her as Trinae at Avalon. Mm-hmm. I know her as Trinae, who basically took down Larry Nassar in Michigan State because 
I remember watching that impact statement mm-hmm. and top three most, I mean, I put that courage and I tell her this all the time up where when you see the man in TNMN Square standing in front of that tank because she's up against this institution that has done all of this enablement and complicity and are still not taking responsibility for this massive trauma. It's an atrocity. Mm-hmm. Well, it was the first one. So when this happened at Michigan, I didn't know where to turn, where to look for. Um, in our case, um, the head coach that was there, Bo Schembechler, had passed. The perpetrator, Dr. Anderson, had passed. So I was able to really tailor my voice in speaking out because of what I saw Trené do. And, um, you know, being a father, I started to look at what does the face of sexual assault look like? And there was this missing part of the circle, which were men, but especially men of color. And, um, you know, I talked to a therapist after one of the protests. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is probably our last protest, you know, big protest. And at that point, I probably had like 500 intimate conversations. And she was like, I've been doing this 40 years. And I haven't had 500 clients tell me that they've been raped. And so everybody has a me too, whether we like that or not. It's similar to everybody knows someone attached to cancer. Um, and I think the there's a power struggle going on right now with the perpetrators. And f- for men to speak up and to speak out, it plays to the fear that they put on society that if football players and wrestlers can be raped, then so can I. But you have to realize, I was an 18-year-old kid who didn't know what a prostate was, but I'm getting digitally raped 50 times while I'm in college. And then, you know, not only as a child, understanding the background of my family. Mm -hmm. My mother's a teacher. There were ex-students of hers that babysit. So I have this weird view of what the grooming process is and how naive we are in that first 25 years of our life when our brain is developing and how trusting you are of all these figures of authority. So, you know, I've been raped by females as well as males, as well as doctors. And the one, I think, the one, I guess, characteristic that's synonymous is that it is never, you know, and I had, it took me 50 years to come to this conclusion that it was never my fault. Yeah. Right? And for years, I thought this was all, my trauma was my fault. Like it was something that I um, welcomed or invited in. And then meeting so many men in their 50s, 60s, and 70s that have 
repressed this trauma for so long, you never understand what the um, collateral damage weight when you know when you reveal your trauma so late in life, then you have to go backwards and look at the train wrecks. Right. And the one thing that I would talk to Trinae about is I said, you were able to get help close to your trauma and then be able to change your life going forward. And so I think for men, making it more comfortable, making it, um, you know, I call it a psychological safe environment where they Mm -hmm. can share their trauma will give them or give the community Mm -hmm. the ability to, you know, stop so many train wrecks. Absolutely. Right. And I think despair is a dark place. And despair, you know, shame, grief, you know, it all stems around the lack of hope. Yeah. Right. And um, for years, I never wanted to die. Mm-hmm. But I felt dead inside. Right. Right. Like I had no hope in humanity. It was hard to trust, you know, and looking back, you look at failed relationships, you know, twice divorced and, you know, and all those things that, you know, we can now talk about this. Everybody's talking about our traumas. Um, it's not as taboo. And so I think we can get ahead of the curve because I think more and more men will start to come out and we can start developing the conversation around helping men because, yeah, you know, I understand what happened to Trinae, yeah, but I can never understand from a female perspective. Right. I think, I think that it, 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 it needs to come from both ends. Yes. Because it's gotten out of control. We are able to have conversations what we do here is we want to make sure they're constructive and safe conversations. Yes. So even when you tell your story, we have to offer you resources because as you just said, hundreds of people are going to come up to you and talk to you and then, okay, I'm I'm telling you my story because I'm trying to deal with it, but now I have all of your things too. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I wish we could do, you know, they do it in some places, they do it in the suburbs, but go into the schools and talk to kids because, yeah, it's that grooming process. You know, my mom... Would not let me sit. And I didn't understand. You know, you're not sitting on a no man's lap. You, you, nobody's here. You know what I'm saying? She was very overprotective of things because things happened to her. Right. And so even if she saw somebody getting too close to me, she nope, nope. You know, and I used to be like, she's so mean. You know what I'm saying? But now that I'm older and I look back, I can appreciate that because she shielded me from a lot of things. We don't talk about that stuff. And and I, like I have my granddaughter. And I tell her mom, I said, if, if she's not feeling comfortable, do not force her to go hug and kiss nobody. And if her attitude changes towards anybody, we need to have a discussion on why. Because we force things on kids sometimes when they're trying to give you all of the signs that I don't right. I don't feel safe and comfortable around this person. And and it's not it's not an intentional thing, I don't think, all the time, but when the predator knows that they have the support of the families, that pushes them to to, to do things a little further. And we all know a sexual assault and rape is not about the act of sex. It's about power, power. and control. Yeah. And when you take that from somebody, you know, for some reason it makes them feel more powerful. So what we need to do is start having discussions, period. And, it, and you know, and it doesn't have to be about sex. It's about safety. 
And it's about when you don't feel safe, it's okay to come talk to me. And it's about standing behind people that tell you, that are telling you that they're uncomfortable and educating. Because if, if you were told about restrictions on your body and nobody should be touching you there and this is private for you, you know what I'm saying? And when we have those conversations with kids, that's not to say that something may not happen to them, but that makes them feel more equipped to come and talk to you about it. And it can prevent some things sometimes or not allow it to happen longer because when you're forced to keep that inside, it, it keeps going. You know, and and it, most people think that rape and sexual assault is the violence. No, you just said a whole doctor who you're trusting is up here doing all of these types of things. And, and that's where we need to monitor things. And that's where people need to speak up. So, again, for you, you're changing stuff. And you're changing, too. Like you mentioned, you're a, a girl dad. Yeah. So, you know. I when I was in high school I was assaulted. My grandfather had passed away when I was a little girl. He was my father figure and I didn't have a strong male role model in high school. I had a stepfather who was always accusing me of of going out with boys and doing things with boys which wasn't at all what I was doing and I didn't feel safe. And you know, I didn't tell my dad. I didn't feel safe with my own supposed father figure to tell him you know, what had happened to me. And you are creating that narrative with your girls mm-hmm. that they can feel safe and that it's okay to to talk about it, you know? So thank you, John. No, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's something I think you mentioned. Um, but if we, you know, can we get real? Like this, mm-hmm. because I'm like a black and white type person, right? Mm-hmm. Rape is a very, it's a very short from a time standpoint, act Mm -hmm. in most cases, unless, you know, you're like captive, but the grooming process is hours and days and week. I started being groomed in the fourth grade. And the first time I was physically raped was between the summer of seventh and eighth grade. Mm. And, but this growing level of fear you know, basically fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, that, and that's what's happening, especially in these institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think w- one of the main reasons why I fight the fight I, I fight is because I think the two most pure things that children get into in the world are music and sport. And the inst- those institutions are, ha- are, are syndicates, if you will, of abuse because it's it's like the horse and the carrot, right? Um, as a friend of mine said, I didn't get a scholarship to play football at Michigan because my copay was rape. But the carrot was, I want to be a Michigan man. I'm the first person in my lineage to play big-time college sports. I, You know, I've got the weight of the community. I've got the weight of my family and I can't um, disappoint them. And so these institutions, um, I think predators have a mindset, whether they're with the, whether they're protected or unprotected in which they're going to smoke and mirror you. <laughs> they're going to play the shell game, if you will, of presenting themselves as someone trustworthy and they have the same type of, you know, language, if you will. 
and the only way to stop to stop it is to confront it in all of its um I don't know if the word is grossness but like I'm not saying fight evil with evil mm-hmm. but if you don't understand the depth of the evil you can never eradicate it and so now that we can have this conversation of what the face of abuse looks like, then we can also have this conversation of what the face of the abuser looks like. Mm-hmm. And too often do abusers hide behind uh, badges, mm-hmm. you know, police officers in your community, uh, institutions at Michigan, um, in, in, in other places. They use their stature to perpetrate these crimes. And, you know, and and I learned this from Trinae, and I'm not sure on the details, but one of the things she talked about is most perpetrators are, they're not a one-time perpetrator. They're Mm -hmm. serial. Mm -hmm. It's it's like you're feeding the addiction. Mm -hmm. And for us, I mean, um, my... The thing that saved my life was writing a book. Okay. And uh, in writing that book, or beginning to write that book, I was taking notes. And and one day I did a back of the envelope and realized that Dr. Anderson committed a minimum of 30,000 institutions of rape. Wow. But I had to understand what the clinical definition <clears throat> of rape was mm-hmm. because what I was taught growing up, it was... Penis. Mm-hmm. Always had something to do with the penis. I didn't understand what digital rape was. And so when we started peeling the layers of the amount of gynecological exams he was doing with certain female victims and the mental torture he was doing to them, but then every day he's getting fed all of these men that have to go through these testicular cancer and prostate cancer exams. You know, we're talking about... 30,000 plus instances where he was able to be protected and empowered um, to the point where his appetite was never satiated. And um, you're starting to see that more and more. Um, You know, honestly, as painful as it is for Ternay, I was like, you, you know, you opened up Pandora's box as it pertains to Michigan State. But it just shed a light on this is going on all over the world, mm-hmm. right? But you also are instrumental in the fight in helping us stop this. And I think, too, more than anything else, it's a black and white thing for me. Is You either are for rape or you're against it, mm-hmm. right? There's no gray area. And we're pushing individuals to make that choice. We're pushing brands to make that choice. Cause if your alliance is the funding, you know, these institutions are, are like armies. A well-funded army is usually a victorious army. So if you're going to continue to fund these armies and fund the institution of rape, then you are now in our crosshairs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, Man, with everything, COVID, all this other stuff going on in the world, we need to find those things that are pure. Mm-hmm. 
right? And if the last two, I mean, I can't think of anything else that's more <clears throat> pure than music and sport, yeah, right? That are lifesavers, especially in our communities, mm-hmm. right? That have been tainted. I mean, last thing you want to do is on your deathbed to try to change the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit too late at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I mean, again, like like for everything that you do, um, and, and you are very impactful, and you and you are not alone, and you are supported, and, and you know, it. I'm I'm sorry for what happened to you. And I don't want to say the bright side is because it's not a bright side. Like you're living with that and you're dealing with that. But this is an opportunity for young men to speak up. This is an opportunity for things like that to never happen again. Um, you know, we all go through things and it's, it's, it's hard to get through. But I always say that it's a reason. And, and some people are, they just have these superpowers where they can bounce back from it some kind of way. Not all the way, but they shed some kind of light on everything else. And then this crazy change just starts to happen. Um, so you're blessed beyond measure and and you know, you're, you're touching people that you'll probably never even meet in your life. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and we're here for you. And I don't want to say that's a blessing because I don't want to take away from anything that happened to you, but I just, you know, try to make it known to people that you're making changes and and that's what you wanted to do. That's what you want to do. And and it may be some days where you feel like nothing is happening at all, but trust and believe you're moving mountains and, and you are, you are saving lives and souls. Um, so, so thank you for everything that you do and, and thank you for taking time out to share your stories and be so vulnerable and open with us. Um, and you know, for any of the men that, that are out there listening, you know, the same thing, you're not alone. Uh, we, we definitely have service and resources here. We're very intentional about offering support to all survivors and, and survivors also include male survivors. And we definitely are not ignoring that. And there's no shame around here for wanting to Get it out and receive support from it because it's nobody's fault. It's the fault of the person who did it. I don't care if it's a man, a woman, a doctor, a cop, a parent, a aunt, a aunt. I don't care. It's not the person who was assaulted's responsibility to carry that burden. And so, you know, we just wanted to offer some support. Oh, thank you. i got to echo what Sharon, she <laughs> said it perfectly. So thank you so much for being here. And it means a lot to us. It means a lot to Avalon. So thank you so much. And um, just really quick, um, I'm just going to do one lightning round question. Okay. At the end of the day, with everything going on with COVID and the world and, and everything that you got going on, what keeps you coming back to doing this work and fighting this fight? A conversation that I had with my mother in February of 1992. My mother um, was a teacher in the worst neighborhoods in St. Louis and um, from Delaware. And we're watching Oprah one day. And, you know, she's inspired to now tell me about the civil rights movement. And then the lineage of my family, which I didn't know that my, I think my great-great-grandmother, I think, helped slaves get to the Underground Railroad. So after watching Oprah one day, she's like, you know, I'm 21 years old at the time. She said, at some point in time in your life, you're going to be faced with something that's bigger than you. And I know that you'll stand because that's the way I raised you. Mm. So the days that I don't want to get up, my mom has since passed. Mm-hmm. I th- fall back on that. Like this is so much bigger than me. 
Um, I believe that God never calls the equipped. He equips the called. And um, which is how I found Trinae or how she found, we kind of found each other. And then I found, you know, then I was introduced to Kim and then Avalon. And you would be amazed at how much Avalon is spoken on the campus of University of Michigan because, you know, they're like, where do we turn? And I was like, well, we turn to Avalon. Right. Um, so that's what keeps me getting up. Thank you, John. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, everybody, please stay safe, and you'll be hearing from us soon. Have a great day.